Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi friends, you're listening to the Wheel Suckers podcast. I'm your captain, Alex. I look after social media, marketing and events at Look Mum No Hands, a cycle cafe bar workshop on 49 Old Street, London. And I'm usually joined by my stoker, Jenny, the director of the London Bike Kitchen, a do-it-together bike workshop located in Hackney. Please enjoy this live recording of Aisha McGowan, a.k.a. A Quick Brown Fox, in conversation with... Jules Walker, a.k.a. Bello City Girl. This was recorded at Look Mum No Hands on 49 Old Street, London, on Monday, the 23rd of July, 2018. So I'm Jules, known as Lady Bello. I blog over on Bello City Girl. And last year, I was in conversation with Aisha McGowan in regards to her mission to become the first professional female African-American pro cyclist. So here we are again, about to have part two of that conversation. So if you were here last year, good to see you again. If this is your first time round, good to see you also. So, Aisha, I know you get asked this a million and one times. Uh-oh. Yeah. But what was the drive behind you being on this mission? What got you to this point? Which mission? <laughs> <laughs> the mission to become the first professional female. Okay. Um, so... That is a byproduct of a different mission to actually create more representation for people of color in cycling. And the racing is actually more so for me. I really just love riding bikes. I love bike racing. And I got into it and realized that, like, (laughs) I just wasn't seeing too many folks that looked like me, man or woman. And that bothered me. Um, And I felt like I was at a place in my life where... I had the energy and the time and I was sort of transitioning out of a bad relationship and so this was the next, the next step. So, um, yeah. Because you were 26 when you decided to, to get into, was it the professional side of cycling or just cycling in general? Yes. So I did my first race like three days before my 27th birthday. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to go pro like eight months later. <laughs> just, you know, just something to do. So, Yeah, I, I, I do that sometimes. <laughs> so it's been, I think, fair to say a, an interesting, if not wild ride that you've been on on, on this mission. I mean, For like sure. the, 
the last time that we saw Aisha when she was here um, as part of the, the Foxtrot uh, tour that she's doing. So if you check that hashtag, you'll be able to follow it. And she's very vocal on her social media and all of her platforms in regards to her journey. You had a lot going on in that space of time that you were in the UK and in Europe for. So what have you actually been up to since that last year that we saw you? Um, okay. Uh, so after I left here, I went to the Netherlands and I stayed there for about three weeks and did a bunch of Kermis racing which is like s short circuits, but longer than criteriums, which are usually less than a mile. Um, so somewhere in between. So about 50 to 60 miles is kind of the longest that those races get. And they're really fast and really technical. And over here, like, it was just such a cool experience because I was able to race with like world tour riders because it was after the Tour de France. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience to, or the, the privilege to go to Belgium after the tour, but they do all of these races and they invite all of the, the men and the women and they pay them a ton of money to show up and the fans go like nuts, but the racing is just super, super fun um, because you've got this super high level of, of cyclist. And for me, I get to race with the pros in America and they're very talented, but this was just like, my brain was exploding and it was so much fun. Um, and so I was able to do that, and that, that was great. And then I, that was pretty much the end of my, like, racing season last year. Um, and the winter is pretty much a lull. You spend a lot of time riding bikes by yourself and training by yourself and just preparing for the next year and dealing with cold, which right now sounds kind of favorable, eh? Um, but this year I've done less racing than I normally do. I've been trying to, like, focus more on, like, making sure that I'm doing the things that I said I was going to do and like seeing what I need to do to get to that next step and get to that next level of my journey and even figuring out what that is and what that means um, because there's just no clear defined path um, from how, on how to become a professional you know, cyclist, um, especially for women. There's no clear defined path. So just trying to figure out what that means and making sure that I'm not not wasting my time but like spending my time on the wrong things, like just prioritizing. So... Um, I raced, I did the Redland Cycling Classic again, and I did way better than I did last year, which was really nice. Um, so last year, I finished the first stage and then was pulled and placed for the rest of them. And what that means is I finished enough of the race that they let me race the next day, but I didn't cross the finish line. Um, but this year, I crossed the finish line at every single race, and that was huge for me. Because um, that is a historic, historically a very challenging race. And, um, and I've done a couple of crits in America, and now I'm gearing up to do the Colorado Classic, which is going to be really hard but really fun. So I'm really excited about that. And what's the, um, what's the Colorado Classic? Um, so my understanding of it is that there used to be a race like it called the Pro Challenge or something. Um, and like a lot of races in the States, it went away. And then... Last year, actually, I think they brought it back, and now it's the Colorado Classic. Um, and there's the men's version of it, like the men's side of it, is a UCI-level race. I don't think the women's races. I think that's just a um, continental, like, national-level race. Um, but it will still attract the best women in the country, which is still really good racing. And um, I don't know. It's just a big opportunity. It's probably next to Redlands the biggest race I've ever done, and maybe bigger, I don't know, I have no idea. I'll know after I do it, <laughs> um, but I'm really looking forward to that, and I've been training really hard and just preparing 
Um, and I think it's, if barring staying rubber side down, I think, I think we're going to crush it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that it sounds like you've had a hell of a lot going on, even though you say that you haven't been either training or racing as much. Now, what you're doing is amazing. Everybody knows that what you're doing is amazing. It's incredible. And other than being described as a, a badass, which is often a, a term that's used for you because it's true, the other thing that you get a lot is that you're called an advocate. And I know that that word um, can carry a lot of a weight and a lot of pressure as well. But how does that make you feel in light of everything that you're trying to do and you're striving to achieve make you feel when you're labeled as an advocate? Um, I, I was an advocate before anything else. Um, I came into cycling as a commuter and kind of naturally went through this progression from commuter to advocate to pick the kid to racer eventually and um, so I feel like I have had that experience where I was already in the advocacy world and already championing for you know better safer streets and complete streets for everybody um, and so it's not something that's foreign to me um, and I think I think I'm, a, I think I'm really good at it. I think I'm very good at being an advocate, especially when it comes to being an advocate for other people. Um, and I am very passionate about a lot of things. And so I think it's a blessing, really, to be able to use that skill set that I have and pair it with the passion that I have and advocate for something that I truly care about. And that is creating more representation for people of color in cycling. Did that answer? Yeah, and okay. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're incredibly vocal about that as well. Um, and you're very honest on all of your, your platforms. So anybody that follows um, Alicia, like on her Quit Brown Fox blog, or if you're looking at her YouTube channels and her Instagram, Twitter, she will talk about the struggles as well as the highs and the lows that come with that and the adversity that you've come across too. Now, in regards to, to that, why do you feel that it's important to, to, to use these platforms to have them to, to reach out to people? Um, I mean, we're in an age of where social media is like the biggest reach where I can now I have friends here in London. I don't live here. And that would have never been as easily made possible years ago. Like the power of the Internet <laughs> is it's, it's, it's there, it's strong. And I'm not the only one using these platforms. Like this is happening across several different sports, several different fields where people are using the internet to reach out and, and spread this message so that people like them don't live in this isolated bubble where they feel like they're alone. Because we're not alone, it just looks that way. And so it's really nice to be able to connect with like-minded folks and not so like-minded folks and, you know, just use those tools that are, you know, made available to me in order to spread my, my message and complete my mission and do all my work. Now, it's in regards to having the importance of those outlets as well, where you say that we're not alone and being able to reach out to like-minded people, some people who, as you say, aren't like-minded as well, and it gives people food for thought in that sense as well, that there is something more beyond the traditional views of cycling that you end up seeing. So it gives someone a window into that and gives them something to think about as well. So it kind of halts 
what I would call like the madness of feeling like you're the only person or like you're screaming into a void. So when you get that kind of feedback from, from people, especially I will say like people of color who want to get into cycling or are feeling like this isn't a space for them, that's something that must be a huge deal when you get that feedback from people also. Um, it's, it's very motivating. It's really helpful. It kind of like, it's definitely fuel that feeds the fire that maybe I am doing the thing I set out to do. I love, I love getting those messages. I love receiving that kind of feedback. And it's not all <laughs> positive. It's not all great. Um, but those messages are super encouraging. And on my less motivated days, it's like a good reminder of, like, this is what you're doing this for. This is why you're out here. Um, and people do care. Someone cares. And that, that helps. I mean, it might be vain, but it definitely helps. So. I don't know. I wouldn't call it vanity as such. I think what you're doing is really important. It's something, I know we come from completely different disciplines and the thing that we've obviously got in common is that, you know, we both enjoy riding bikes. But it's important, I know, for the beginning of my journey when I wasn't seeing anybody that I felt like I could identify eight years ago when I got back on a bike, finding people within those communities to talk to and who were spreading that message is so important. So... It brings me on to, to thinking about um, another interview that you did with Outside Magazine, where you were talking about it not being a case of the organizations higher up that you would be taking to task about increasing representation or widening participation in that sense, but actually grassroots is quite important in that too. So again, it loops back round to the importance of having a panel discussion like this, for example, just having this Q&A so that everyone who is able to can come along to it and listen to the message and maybe have some kind of takeout from that too. But for you, like you do other works with other groups as well as your own advocacy that you do. And it, just to talk about the, the essential importance of grassroots organizations and the huge difference that they can make as well. <laughs> so why do you find grassroots organizations would be the most important ones to, to reach out to or to make that change instead of it coming from higher up the cycling food chain? When you say reach out to, do you mean like the people with the power? <laughs> yeah, I guess that the people with the power. Because I, I, for me personally, I'd like to think that these bigger organizations would want to engage in dialogue and actually right. have these conversations as well. Right. Okay. I follow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's actually a question that I get sometimes from companies. Like, they'll read, like, the, an article, and they'll say, okay, so what do we do? Um, and the answer is pour your resources into those grassroots organizations. There are nine times out of ten, there's already somebody out there doing the work. There's already somebody out there who cares about this thing and has started something and is trying to accomplish a goal that you want to support. And you have to take the time to find them because their voices are small and it's hard to get heard. And so it's really important that when companies and organizations and industry people, retailers, whoever, whoever has money, reach, power, whatever you have, it's important for you to not immediately start your own thing. It's important for you to immediately not try and reinvent the wheel and instead look around your local community, talk to the people who are organizing and, and see if they aren't those people. See if they know those people who are already doing something, like doing the thing that you're trying to support instead of using your resources to start a completely new thing and completely ignoring the people who are probably actually experiencing the problem that they're trying to solve um, and trying to create this new thing in a complete vacuum where you have no idea what you're doing and no idea what you're talking about and you're just throwing money at something. And that's a real problem that happens. It, 
and it's not super productive. It's not very helpful. Did I, was that clear? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I talk in circles. <laughs> I mean, for, for me in that sense, where I've been doing this for the last eight years, my own experience was is that I was invited to have a conversation with a very big cycling organization earlier on this year, which I was quite excited about because it's somewhere where I don't see people like myself reflected within it. And I was excited that they actually wanted to engage in dialogue with me and talk about how they could widen and increase participation in cycling across the, the UK. So I went along, um, stayed with them for the day, had the meeting. It was brilliant. I gave them some ideas. Um, I talked about it on my blog and on my social media as well and hoping that the conversation was actually going to continue seven months on, I haven't heard anything back, which is increasingly like disappointing. Like I keep on prodding and nudging and hoping that somebody is actually going to listen to me. And one of my big worries that I have is the, the use of diversity or if it's just a trendy tag to be latched onto at the moment. So you're riding that wave and then all of a sudden when the interest kind of dies down, you're still there sort of bobbing up and down in the water hoping someone's going to have that conversation and nobody runs with it. Is, is that something that you have experienced yourself as well, like over in the States especially? Um, for sure. I mean, that's kind of the whole idea around tokenism where people think it's... Sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to turn this off. <laughs> Aisha. Boom. Okay, let me be. <laughs> All right, um, where people think it's really great to, 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 to champion diversity, and the, the answer to that is, well, we'll just call Aisha, and then she'll smile real big, and we'll take a picture, and we'll slap it on something, and we're done, we did it, we solved the problem. And you haven't, <laughs> like, at all. Um, that is not a solution. That is probably the worst Band-Aid in the world. And tomorrow, when everyone's white again, like, where, where, what did we accomplish? What did we do? You've got pictures that you're probably going to recycle for three years and still feel really great about yourself, but that's not solving the actual problem. It's just kind of looks like you did, and no, <laughs> just no. But then, do you ever have, because I've had this too, where you, you want to use your voice, you want to talk about these things, you start doing it, and then you either get labeled as being the angry black woman or you get told that there isn't a problem with color. Like, I, I see no color. I don't see this as being an issue, or you're creating the issue yourself. Because I've had that, and it's, it's disappointing because it then feels like I'm being silenced and not being able to use my voice and speak for other marginalized groups as well, that you're, you're causing a problem. If you can't see beyond your own scope, then you won't understand that there is a problem there that we're trying to have a conversation about. I don't know if you've heard, but I apparently I am ruining the sport of cycling. Are you? The whole sport. I have that kind of power. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Am I going to turn on Eurosport and like the Tour de France no is going to be France. gone? It's going to be gone. Completely gone. <laughs> I broke it all down. <laughs> and how, I mean, I know it's probably a, a self-answering question, but how on earth does that make you, you feel like that you're being told that you're ruining a good thing? Well, it's so ridiculous that it makes me laugh. Um, I've gotten to the point now where I have, I play bingo with like internet things. And I don't know if anyone's ever seen this, but it, it's not just me. Like it's a thing that happens. Like they'll have like feminist bingo or whatever, where you create your own bingo board of things that you expect someone to say. And it becomes a fun game where you just kind of 
give yourself a nice little check mark when somebody says something like, she's ruining the sport. It's great. It, and, it, it, and it helps keep things in a perspective of, it's not, it's not so much about me versus the person who's saying these things being very scared of change and being scared of something that they don't understand. Um, and it's just completely out of fear and ignorance. And I, I know that. Um, and I've also kind of shut down how much internet I consume and what kind of internet I consume. So I've walked away from Facebook because it's it just my, my personal Facebook. I, I couldn't do it anymore. It was mm. like I was like just reading all of the comments and like laughing and playing bingo and sometimes getting upset about it. And that's a complete waste of time. I could be training or working or watching Netflix. Like I could do anything else and it would be more productive than watching people be angry on the internet. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, you've talked about this before, that we've had this chat in regards to selective consumerism on the internet, in regards to what you, you take in, in regards to, obviously, what it is that you're trying to achieve, people that may be trying to derail you from that as well. So I understand that the internet and social media can be both a good and a bad thing as well. And so you've, you've made a real conscious effort to... to not necessarily tune out all of the bad noise that you have, but you have made an effort to actually pull yourself away from that. And has that been beneficial for you in regards to your own personal mental health and in regards to your goals that you've got in mind too? Yes, definitely yes to both. Um, the, this past winter was just really hard for personal reasons. And it, winters in general, like I really have a hard time with, with the winter season. I, I don't know if sad is a thing here. Yeah. Seasonal, whatever, affective mm -hmm. disorder. Um, it's so real, and it's really easy to get bummed out and just completely depressed, especially when you're not, like, riding your bike in the sun. You're, like, on a trainer <laughs> watching Gilmore Girls again. Like, <laughs> it gets to you. And, and other life things were getting to me, and you see, you know, on the Internet, you see some people that are just always having a great time, and that can get to you too. Um, but sometimes it's just nice to walk away. Actually, I have an app now. I have an app that has timers on it where, oh, hello, baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> it has timers on it on my social media. So I have two options. I can set it to say, you can only look at Instagram for 30 minutes a day, or I can set it to block out certain times where I know I need to be doing something else. And it's so insane to me that this is the point that I've come to in life where I have to set up an app to block my permission to see social media. But if that's what I need to do to get it done, that's what I'm going to do um, until I can, I guess, wean myself off of it. Um, but it's just, it can be super, super distracting to just constantly just be looking at what other people are doing. And I try and make a point of not comparing myself to anyone else because that is so dangerous because I am not anyone else. I am me and whatever I'm doing and whatever path I'm on and whatever time that takes is what it's going to be. Like me looking at somebody else doing something is not going to change what I'm doing. And it's also just going to distract me from being able to focus on that and accomplish the things that I'm trying to accomplish. It is important to take that step back. I mean, I was talking to you about this before, but my own personal experiences with that that I can totally relate to is that, you know, cycling has been my life for the last eight years. That's what I've constantly been doing. That's what I've been writing about. That's what I went freelance into. And then I had 
an incredibly weird dry spell where I stopped cycling for six months and I couldn't tell anybody about it because I felt like a fraud that I wasn't getting out on my bike and riding or commuting or finding excuses not to do it. My mental health hadn't been in a particularly good place either and I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody about that in regards to the return of my depression just like creeping back in on me. But then... I was trying to boost myself by going and looking on social media, looking at other people that were out there tearing it up on their bikes and thinking, well, I can take that as encouragement. But it was actually completely counterproductive that I was drowning myself in that narrative instead of actually just taking the time out and detaching. And now I'm gradually getting back into to being on my bike again, which is great. I made the decision to withdraw from doing Ride London this year because I knew mentally I didn't have it in me to do the 100 miles. And it would have been a massive mistake for me to just be like, right, I'm just going to rock up to the start line. It's going to be absolutely fine. And then probably see what happens, like see how it goes. It, it would have been a mess. And I had to actually have that kind of honest conversation with myself and pull away from that and just say that that's okay. Now, what I find fascinating that you... you I'm melting. <laughs> that you, um, that you're, you're doing this, you're pulling away from it but obviously with how vocal you are on your platforms and how important that is for you to get the message out there how you're able to reconcile that how you're able to balance the time for yourself as well as all of the advocacy that you're doing and the racing on top of that and things like even this like your foxtrot tour that you're doing as well that's going to be all over social media too i haven't gotten it down to a science i'm still working on it i still have those times where i'm like binging on internet stuff, um, but it's, it's, it's getting better and being aware of it um, has helped a lot and, and sort of asking the questions of like, why do things make me feel the way they feel? Also, I got myself therapy for Christmas, best present ever. Um, winter, like I said, was really, really tough and I wasn't in a great brain space and I was in a place where I could finally afford <laughs> to do that and so I, I did it and I don't regret it and I think just being honest about your feelings and where they're coming from like I will also on social media go through times where I binge unfollow people like just if there's somebody that I'm looking at and it makes me not want to ride my bike or it makes me feel inadequate it's the internet it's social I don't have to look at that there are things that you have to deal with that is not one of them and it's sometimes hard to remember that because there's also this, like, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but there are people on the internet who will try and, like, make you feel guilty for unfollowing things that don't make you happy. And it's the internet. Like, we're not required to follow people who are jerks or follow people who are making us feel crappy. Um, you can't really do much about that in the real world, but on the internet, you've got the power. You can, you can do it. And I suggest you do. It's super helpful. So could that even itself be, and we've talked about this before, barriers to entry in regards to, to cycling as well, that you see these messages of encouragement that are out there, but then you get the ones where you're feeling slightly guilty because you're not out there as well. Like, do you find that some of the things that you end up seeing online in regards to, to cycling could end up being a barrier to entry for what it is that you want to do? So <laughs> I ask questions all wrapped up in an enigma. But um, no, basically, just in regards to the, the, the online barriers to entry, that your, your biggest platforms are being online. But do you ever worry sometimes that you're putting barriers to entry in front of yourself in regards to being online and some of the messages that you're seeing out there? Rephrase it again. <laughs> 
Do you find any online barriers to entry exist for getting into cycling? Created by myself? Either by yourself or even by your own peers that you look at? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes we can romanticize processes that aren't romantic. And um, there's also a culture in cycling where people think suffering's really cool. And sometimes it sucks. <laughs> sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you're hot. Sometimes you're hungry. And... And it's okay to say that. Like, you can be a person. You don't have to be a machine because we are not machines. And, I mean, I try and share those things um, <laughs> as much as I'm comfortable with, I guess. I mean, like, I don't necessarily want to show the world me being a hot mess all the time. Um, that's not going to be very encouraging either. But sometimes I'm a hot mess, and that's okay. Um, Sometimes I don't finish a race, and that's okay. Sometimes I overheat. Sometimes I throw up on myself. Sometimes I don't leave my house. It, it happens, and, and that's okay, too. And I think um, it's really easy for people to, like, curate their timelines to be perfect and always look like they're having a bright and sunny day, and it's not how things work. It's just not reality, and so that can definitely be a barrier where if you are not always having a bright and sunny day, you don't feel like you're cut out for it. And that's just wrong. Now, where you're taking time for yourself, I don't know um, if you've seen this on Aisha's YouTube channel, but she did, at the beginning of the year, not New Year's resolutions, but it was a set of sort of, yes, mantras, mantras, mantras the, the best way to describe it, not revolutions, but like sort of declarations, I guess, yeah. for what you were, were going to do and principles that you wanted to, to live by. Now, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that, especially in regards to not overextending yourself as well, yes. um, and what kind of knowledge you're hoping to impart onto other people with your, your declarations and your principles to live by. Well, I've forgotten most of them. <laughs> um, but the overextending one was the biggest one for me and the one that I probably have focused on the most. Um, because I want to do all the things, all the time, um, and for everyone, <laughs> and that's not possible. And so even with this trip, like, I wanted to go all the places, and no, like, <laughs> um, the, the, the things that I have done, like, I, I've been kind of on the cusp of not having enough sleep for the whole time I've been here, and last night, I think I slept for, like, nine hours, and my, I have the, the smartwatch that's like, you've reached your sleep goal. And I'm like, yes, that is incredible. Um, but then I imagine, like, if I'd added those other things to my itinerary on top of the stuff that I've already done, like, I probably would have shut down a week ago. Like, it wouldn't have happened. And it's really important um, to learn how to say no. And that's something that I've always been bad at because I think that's just how I was raised, where you want to help everybody and you want to make sure everybody else is taken care of and you want to make sure that um you know that that you, you say yes all the time and even if you know you can't do it and even if you know you won't be able to do it well you show up in whatever capacity you're at and sometimes that's okay but a lot of times it's not you're not helping anybody if you show up and you're all raggedy like it's not it's not useful to anyone and so i've really been focusing on taking care of myself, which is why I got myself therapy for Christmas and why I'm tr really trying to stop overextending and why I'm really trying to pay attention to like how things make me feel and cutting things and people out of my life that I need to and introducing things and people in my life that I need to. Um, 
and just making sure that I am my best self because I am on a really big mission and I am trying to do a really big thing. And I had a really good friend when I started out on this who tried to tell me, teach me about abundance, which is not something that I completely understood at the time because I was always used to just making do and getting by. And he helped me to realize that without abundance, I can't spread. I can't help anyone else because I won't have enough, not even for myself. And so I've really been focusing on me and making sure that I'm okay so I can really do the things that I want to do and really help as many people as I actually can. And I think this year I've been doing a really good job of that. I'm like really proud of the progress that I've made on, on focusing on that. Um, and I know I'm droning on, but even with racing, one of the things that I've really been focusing on is self-talk and um, like just preparing positive thoughts ahead of time because like we said before suffering isn't cool all the time and so when I enter these big races I know it's going to suck at some points and so while I'm training and, and riding beforehand I practice those thoughts I practice telling myself the things that I'm going to need in the moment to get me through the hard parts of races like hanging on when they're climbing up hills way too fast for me or whatever it might be and I think I, I just taking care of yourself is super, super important. And we've romanticized being tired and, and suffering all the time. And that, it gets old. And I, maybe it's because I'm getting older that I realize that that's not sustainable. Um, but it's really important to realize that. And I wish that we spoke about that more and preached about that more because people are burning out. Um, a lot of the people that started racing with me don't race anymore. They either overdid it and injured themselves and they can't even ride a bike or they just burnt out. They got tired of it. They got sick of it. It wasn't, they didn't take care of themselves. And so it's really important that we take care of ourselves so we can do the things we want to do and help the people we want to help. Now, talking about taking care of yourself, one of the things that you put up on your blog was a pretty nasty crash that you had quite recently as well, which is good that you're able to, to smile and laugh about it as well. But it looked pretty damn gnarly for the pictures that you, you put up. Like, what happened with that for people that aren't, aren't aware um, so I was racing nationals in, in America. Um, it was the crit national championship and I wasn't, I didn't think I was going to win, but I was, I felt really good and I thought I could place really well and I could get a nice result and I was doing really well and it rained and I slid out on like the crosswalk paint, um, in a turn. So I was turning left and then I wasn't anymore. <laughs> And then I was sliding, and then I stopped because I hit my chin on a metal barrier. Um, and I hit, I, hit, I hit pretty hard, um, but I slid first, so my momentum was slowed down. If I would have hit the barrier immediately, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. Um, so racing can be dangerous, and that, that is what it is. I've forgotten your question. Um, just, <laughs> just in regards to, um, obviously, self-care, taking oh, take care, care of them. Yeah. Right. So it was supposed to be a two-race weekend. <laughs> where crit nationals were on Friday and road nationals were on Sunday and I was intending to do both. And so I had this choice to make because I hit my, my head, but I felt fine, you know, whatever feeling fine means. And I could race. I mean, I could ride a bike if, if I wanted to, um, but I had this choice to make. Do I do, I do it? Do I show up and, and race road nationals? And inevitably, I decided not to. Um, I didn't feel 100%, but I felt good enough to, to good enough, and that wasn't good enough because I feel like 
my motivation and my desire to race was um, over, trying to overcompensate for my actual physical state, which was I hit my head really hard and I probably need to sit down for a couple of days. Um, and that's what I ended up doing. And it wasn't a hard decision to make, but it was a hard decision to make because it was such a big race. It was nationals. Um, and I was in really great shape. And I felt, you know, before I hit my head, I felt really good and I thought I could do really well. But at the same time, what if I show up, I race my bike, I fall again, or I don't fall again, and I'm not okay, and I just, I'm, you know, I've, I've endangered somebody else, or whatever the reason. I had to make the decision to not race, and I'm, I'm happy with the decision I made. Yeah, I was bummed. Like, I really wanted to keep going, even after I, like, even immediately after I crashed. Like, I do this thing where I perk up immediately, and like, no, oh, I'm okay, and even if I'm not, um, I once hit my... <laughs> I was snowboarding when I was in like middle school or high school and I, I think I like fell asleep or something or passed, I don't know, but I hit the ground and I hit my head and when I woke, like when I opened my eyes, all my friends were crowding around me and one of the ski patrol people and they were like, oh, she's probably had a mild concussion, you guys should probably walk her to the med tent, but I was with a bunch of idiot boys and they just kept skiing and I popped up and like grabbed my snowboard and was like, I'm okay and like walked off, but what they didn't know is like, 50 feet away, I like sat down. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to sit down for a bit. <laughs> and took a little nap on the ground. <laughs> and so like, I know that about myself. I know that I will try and save face and like, be okay, even if I'm not. And again, with talking about all the burnout that I've seen where my friends have injured themselves to the point where they can't ride bikes anymore. I don't want that. I, beyond racing, really love riding bikes. And the idea that I couldn't do that anymore because of one race, yeah. it's not worth it. It's just not. And so um, just being really mindful of things like that. It's just knowing that there's, there's life beyond racing, not obviously doing down the fact that you race, but yeah. it's just, you know, you got into riding bikes for the, the love of it and the enjoyment. And I know that that was partly therapy for you a certain extent when you got back into doing it. And it's just not not losing sight of it because sometimes it feels like the competitive edge is the only thing that people want to, to, to talk about or to hype up and to look at but just for the sheer joy of getting on a bike is something that should never get lost and that's something that you I mean outside of your competitive racing that you, you do and obviously the mission that you're, you're on what are the things that make you tick outside of that? Um, I mean on the bike I try and sign up for things that I don't know if I'll enjoy, like try and still be adventurous and try new things. In, <laughs> in June, I did the Dirty Kanza 200, which I don't regret, <laughs> but I'm never doing it again. <laughs> what, what is, what is, is it the Dirty? Dirty Kanza. So it starts in Emporia, Kansas, and it's 206-mile gravel race through like, the, like rolling hills of Kansas. I don't ride let alone race gravel so that was like my first gravel race and of course you know you know I, tr I went tried to go pro after 10 months so of course I'm gonna my first gravel race is gonna be 206 miles <laughs> um I finished <laughs> um I took it I took a nap <laughs> during the third leg um, I love your love of naps by the way oh I <laughs> love naps bike races are probably not the best time to take naps but for this race I made an exception <laughs> and I wasn't racing like for me this was com so far out of pocket. Like, I am not a gravel person. I think after doing it, 
maybe I can do like a gravel century again, but I'm never doing 206 miles of anybody's gravel race. It's not gonna happen. Like don't even suggest, recommend, <laughs> no. However, that being said, if you wanna try it, <laughs> I suggest you go for it because I learned a lot about myself that day and I don't regret doing it. I just know that it's one of those one-time experiences for me. Um, and yeah, so I just try and remember, like try and make sure that I keep grounded in the, in the things that made me like cycling in the first place. So I like to do like community rides, group rides, just not always racing and, and not always going fast. I really like going fast, but I also like going slow and I like having talks and I like meeting new people and chatting it up and making new bike friends because bike friends are the best friends. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I like bikes and I don't want to lose that to racing because I, I like racing, but it can... It can get overwhelming if you let it. It really can, it can consume everything. And bikes have already consumed enough. <laughs> you talk about some of the community things that you get involved in as well. Like we touched upon this the last time that we were, were talking that there was a group that you, you used to ride with. I think was it um, there was a partially sighted group that you used to do things with as well? Or have I got that wrong? The partially sighted group. Yeah. Right. Um, so there is a nonprofit in New York City called In Tandem. And the... Focus is providing tandem cycling opportunities for people with disabilities, and most of those people are visually impaired. Um, and so I don't live in New York City anymore, so I don't get to ride with them. Um, but I do help organize the now late-night donut ride. Before it was the all-night donut ride, but then by like 4 a.m. everybody was just completely shelled. <laughs> um, so we're trying to do it a little earlier this time um, and have like a daytime component to it. But what could be more fun than riding around New York City at nighttime, eating donuts? <laughs> um, so yeah, just like making sure that I'm still doing fun things and, and you know, not feeling like I have to be hardcore or be pro all the time because that's not what made me fall in love with bikes. Like being pro is cool and I really want to do it. Um, but I also really enjoy just being a person on a bike because it's really fun and then off the bike um <clears throat> i watch a lot of netflix <laughs> um i've been trying to read more um spending time with my dog and my husband nice. and i really enjoy traveling although that ends up being a bike thing yeah i was gonna <laughs> say every time you tend to, to travel something to do with yes. bikes ends up being part of it there was the one time my husband convinced me not to bring my bike and then there was like a beautiful bike lane right in front of the hotel yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't shut up it's just in your blood that you have really to be, like be doing this. It's, it's wonderful <laughs> that you really like it, and even on the, the outside of the competitive element of it, yeah. that this is what you're, you're doing too. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, obviously, is the, um, I'm, I'm not an expert when it comes to, to professional cycling or competitive cycling at all. So I feel like I get an education from following you and women like you who are doing that too. But the struggles that I'm wondering that you, you face with that um, in regards to teams or if it's sponsorship, like if that's something that can be a bit of a, a grind because like essentially I look at it in the sense that you're going it alone, which I have so much respect for, but that's got to be such a grind on you at the same time as well when you're in constant discussions with people who would be potential sponsors or potential team spots and like what's your coping mechanism with that? 
It gets complicated really fast, and it really makes you question, like, self-worth and value and all of those kinds of things, and that can get really dangerous, um, which is a part of why the winter got really rough. It was right after, like, team season, and um, I had some opportunities that all inevitably fell through, and that was really hard, because... For me, it's like, oh, I'm getting closer. Like, I've got this opportunity. It's going to work out. I'm going to have a team next year. And then I didn't. And so I was in this scramble where I had to, like, figure it out. Because is it, okay, am I done? Do I not race next year? And the answer to that was obviously no. Because I'm not going to, well, I'm not going to not race. That's just not, I like racing. Um, so I had to figure out how I was going to race. Because bike racing is crazy expensive. Like, especially the kind of bike racing that I'm trying to do. <laughs> um, and, and so I was able to pull something together, and I feel really fortunate in that, and I worked really hard to make that happen. Um, but yeah, it, it's a challenge always having to like convince people to give you a chance and convince people to give you a shot, and then having some of them say yes, and then having some of them change their minds, and that, you know... That like up and down roller coaster can be very emotionally exhausting, and I don't know if I've questioned if I want to keep doing it because I think I've sort of prepared myself for this type of thing. Like I anticipated this being the case at like what would happen. I didn't anticipate having an opportunity presented to me and then taken away. That I wasn't prepared for, um, and so that was something that I had to like deal with. But my understanding of the cycling industry is that happens to everyone. That happens to a lot of women. And especially last season, a lot of teams folded. A lot of big teams folded. And so there were way fewer spots. And yeah, I'm talented, but there are way more talented women out there who were already on teams who now didn't have any. And so I just have to wait my turn, and I understand that. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to put myself in the back of the line, like myself. I don't want to do that to myself. If I'm in the back of the line because that's where I belong, that's fine. But sometimes we have this tendency, tendency to say, oh, I'm not worth it, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. And we make the decision for them. We don't even ask the questions. We don't even apply to the teams or apply for the jobs or reach out in the first place. And after that fall fiasco of, having these opportunities and then not having them, I found myself sort of questioning myself and starting to like mentally put myself in the back of the line. And that was something that I had to, to try and get away from because I'm never going to go pro if I put myself in the back of the line. If I don't believe in me, who's going to believe in me? Like, why would they take a chance on somebody who doesn't even think that they're worth it? Um, and so my goal is to make myself worth it, is to make myself worthy and to put myself in the front of the line. And I don't want any handouts. I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. That's not what this is. I want to earn my place and I want to get there and I want to know that I did it and I want to know that I belong there and I want to know that, that they want me there. Mm. Um, and there was a little bit of that with applying for teams as well where I would apply for teams and the responses weren't nice. Um, I was going to ask, like, without obviously getting too too personal in regards to that uh -huh. but like some of the, the the letdowns that you've had or some of the excuses that you've had from the industry in regards to you not getting that spot or not getting that sponsorship if there have been ones that you're looking at it and you're just like what the actual hell is this it got to the point where i was 
I was excited when I got a rejection letter that was just a rejection letter, <laughs> where it wasn't like <laughs> also really mean. It's like you, you can just say no. <laughs> That's cool too. Um, and there was one that really stood out, and I'm not gonna like name names or say anything, but they called my like team application, which is basically like applying for a job. You send an email, you send a resume, you say, hey, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and they decide what to do with it. And that response to that was, um, despite your marketing plan, <laughs> um, I don't see color, and Yay. yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and I basically I pick my my riders based on merit and all of this other stuff. So I take great joy whenever I beat any of them in a race. <laughs> and I know how petty and pathetic that might seem, but sometimes it feels good to know that. I, I, I was good enough, you were just being a jerk and you were probably also being really racist and I don't need that and if you're going to be that way I don't even want to be on your team. Mm. Um, and so that's something that I'm actually truly afraid of that I will end up in a place where I'm not wanted and there is a risk in that especially because I am so vocal and because I am so clear about what it is that I am about and what I'm trying to do that people or someone might let me on a team or put me on a team or hire me for a team is a better word and not actually want me there. Yeah, because I think that the, the risks that comes with it in the sense of obviously you have your, your beliefs, everything that you're working towards, what you're striving towards and how vocal you are about it. But if you were suddenly put into a position where you're on a team who then tried to silence you or tried to take your voice away because it doesn't sit with the, the brand message or it doesn't give, you know, a good, a, a, a good outlook for the, the team as well or for the, the sponsors that is involved in it. It's the worry that you would be given something that you'd wanted but you'd, you'd worked hard to get there but then they will try and mould you into to something else. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely a thing I think about, especially in women's cycling where it's not uncommon for... <clears throat> for riders to have to like before you talk to anyone or say anything about anything you have to clear it with them first um, and so a lot of things get muted within the world of women cycling and a lot of really bad things that should get out don't get out because the riders are afraid to lose their spots and they're afraid to lose their positions on teams and because it's so hard to get one they Deal with it. There's a lot of dealing with it that goes on. And that's just a, l a lot of women in sports in general from my understanding of it. Um, but I think in cycling it's particularly bad. Which is why it's really nice to see what's been happening in gymnastics. Um, I don't know if that's just American gymnastics. No, that's been covered in, well, I know for American gymnastics that's been what's covered on the, the news. But we know what you're talking about in regards to that where they've been calling out obviously the, the coach and yeah, the, yeah. the legal matters that happened as a result of that too. Right, and so something like that was perpetuated for years and years and years because everyone's afraid to talk about it and, um, and being regulated and being monitored. And so that is definitely something that I fear. But I also believe that I've, I've been this person. It's kind of like you know what you're getting when you get it. And I've always been really respectful. And I don't think anything I've ever said was a lie. <laughs> um, and so... I, I know that if they have a problem with me being who I am and me caring about what I care about, then that's probably not the team for me anyway. So it might take me a little longer to find a spot to land, but I do believe that I will find a spot to land. And where do you find the motivation to keep going with this? I'm stubborn. <laughs> the same place I found the motivation to finish a 206-mile gravel race. <laughs> 
super stubborn. Yeah. You just don't tell me what I can't no. do. I, I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> I'm going to do it because you told me I couldn't. <laughs> so for you, with your, your journey that you've been on for, for these years now, what have been like, some of the most positive changes that you've, you've seen like, within just women cycling as a whole as well? Um, so the UCI just announced that they are going to have a minimum salary for women starting in 2019 or 2020, 2019. What year are we in? 2018. 2018. So I think, I think it might be one of those years. It's going to happen. Whereas before it wasn't happening. So that is progress. Um, and yeah, that's a big one. Like, that was a huge one where pro women didn't have a minimum salary. So these women that are out here in the pro peloton, they were, a lot of them were doing it for nothing, for the love of the sport. And so, like, when folks accuse me of trying to, to do this for money, I laugh. Because, because there is none. <laughs> but this is your, your full-time thing that you were doing, or you have anything else going on on the, the side as well, but... Is it a huge thing if it's full-time for you that you're throwing yourself into this? Of course, we hear these conversations that there is no money in, in cycling or there's very limited resources available. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right. So as far as the competitive end of it goes, I don't make money from any of that. Um, as far as advocacy, I do some writing. I do some talking. I do some travel. I do a lot of things. I'm always working. I'm always you know, busting my butt trying to make it and trying to get the word out and trying to get the message out. And that, that stuff is work. It is work. And I'm at the point where I request for people to compensate me for the work that I do. And mm. that is another thing that I've been working on, like with self-value and self-worth and making sure that I don't shortchange myself and under, undersell myself. And it's not so much about exploiting people, but just... If you do a job, you should get paid for it. That sounds pretty, pretty simple and pretty straight up. But I've had plenty of experiences like that where I've, 
I have done things for, for free and I've understood why I've ended up doing those things for free if it's a smaller organization. But then when you know if you have something that is of worth that somebody wants, that there isn't anything wrong in actually asking to be compensated for that. But then do you often feel sometimes that you're just you're put in a corner in the sense that you shouldn't be able to, to answer that at all or you're being silenced by people? Rephrase that. Um, in regards to, to payment, I know, like, you know, men, men versus women in regards to, to pay and remuneration and what have you. Like, I've been in situations where I know that there have either been men who have been paid more than me or have been paid and I haven't been paid for the work that I've done at all. For sure. And I think it comes down to, um, again, talking about putting yourself in the back of the line. People can, like... People in those places, the people with the money, the people with the power, they usually have a pretty good idea of, of what's what and who's who and, and who they can sucker into doing things for free and who they have to pay. Um, and I don't know, I've taken a lot of time to think about my place in the world and like where I belong and, and whatever, but there are exceptions. There are people, like there are like nonprofits and yeah. smaller corporations, and I made a rule, and it might sound however it sounds, but... If it's not for black folks, I'm going to be a whole lot less lenient about making exceptions about things like that. Like, if it's not directly working towards the thing that I'm trying to solve, I'm not going to make an exception because why should I? You want me here because it'll make you look good. And I'm not a tool and I'm not a token. So if you're going to use me as a prop to some extent, you're going to pay me and then I'm going to say the things I want to say. <laughs> um. <laughs> And, 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 and it is what it is at this point. And, and that happens in advocacy across all fields where people will try and, and hire folks on, on the back of exposure in, in artistry and creatives. It happens. Like, exposure does not pay the bills. So don't do it. Like, if you are a company or an organization and you are trying to educate your employees or you're trying to reach out to another demographic or whatever it is that you're trying to do. If it's something that's going to make you money in some fashion or in some way, then you need to compensate whoever is doing the work that is making you more money. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just plowing it back in to, you know, I think we're talking about in regards to, to grassroots organizations that we talked about too if like the bigger organizations were then looking at these grassroots groups and then wanting to, to work with them and then actually plowing some money into that to perpetuate the positivity, as it were, that's the most important thing there too for that to happen. But um, I think what I'm, I'm getting at here is like, have there been any grassroots organizations that you've, you've worked with that you've actually seen have the benefit of the money or the benefit of a bigger organization trickling down and helping them? Or is that something that we're still striving towards seeing within the cycling industry? I've seen it starting to happen, mm. but it's one of those things where it's just starting to happen, so we're seeing where it goes. We're seeing if it's one of those things where it's like all talk or if there's actually like a lot of action behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's still... To me, it still feels like there's quite a way to go. I mean, I'm, I don't want to look at it in regards to cycling being all, all negative because that's not the case. And there is still obviously the joy that we're able to take out of being on bikes as well. But it still feels like there's a lot of work that still needs to be done towards that in regards to widening participation, in regards to looking at these grassroots groups and actually raising them up as well. For all your, I know it's only the second time that you've been to the, the UK and then the tours that you've been doing in Europe as well. What's been 
for you the big difference that you've seen between the cycling scene in the States and the cycling scene in Europe? Um, in regards to progression or opportunities that are available or dialogues that have even happened as well? Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> I think I just see more happening in the States because it's, the work has been going on for much longer, whereas over here... I think it's just getting started, um, and I think that, like, there's a there's a thing that gets talked about in advocacy a lot, where people are constantly working in silos, where where you're all working towards very similar goals, but you're doing it alone, um, and so those networks aren't being built. And what I found in my travels um, here is that there's a lot of silo happening, a lot of silo action where. A lot of the people that I think should really know each other don't know each other yet. Um, and I think when those connections start getting made that the progress will start happening faster because more voices will be joined and, and more things will, it'll be easier to, to back each other up and yeah, to, to support each other. Um, and so it's just a matter of finding all of those people who are, who are doing the work already or all of those people who want to do the work and are willing to be a part of it. There is something important and special about cohesion happening because like what I said earlier in regards to feeling like you're shouting into the, the void because there are so many different types of cycling groups and different people out there who may be all working towards the same thing or are looking for that support unit and again it's having to go back to it the spaces of like social media is one of the best ways to, to reach out to people or being able to put on events like this to, to talk to other people and spread that message as well so it's seeing more of that happening would be quite I don't know refreshing in that sense and just having agreed how those networks can actually end up being brought together as well agreed for sure now, what I was wondering, um, I know we've got Facebook Live going on, but I'm not sure who's actually monitoring it in regards for the, the questions. So I was going to... Oh, here we go. I'm going to run over to you, because I know no one can hear, so... How are y'all doing? <laughs> I'm just finding out what the Facebook question is. I'm trying not to move, and then I won't sweat as much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Aisha, we've got a question coming in from a gentleman called Jonathan, saying that he follows you on Twitter. Thank and you. Loves the advocacy. Thank you. But worries that your cycling reports never seem to refer to a club or a team. Now, John one. Jonathan is saying as a cycling coach, he can see the benefits of training in a group and riders pushing each other. And do you have that regular cohort of people to kick your butt and for you to inflict suffering on? <laughs> I like that. Um, so I have this thing where I move a lot. <laughs> and so I'm constantly having to find a new cohorts. <laughs> and... Um, with my last move, I moved to Decatur, which is just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and then we had a hurricane, and then we had winter. <laughs> and so I spent all of that time indoors, and then by the time the sun came out, so did the rain. <laughs> and so I find that 
I've done a couple of group rides and I've made a couple of friends, but suburban sprawl, I don't know if that's a thing that happens here. Like everything in Atlanta is so spread out. Whereas when I lived in New York and even in California near Oakland, things were much closer together and it was much easier to, to ride with other people. But now where I am, I have to ride or drive a while before I can like get to the other people to ride with. So when I'm training, I just do my ride and go home. And so I have to like go out of my way to, to ride with other folks. Um, and, and so the thing that I enjoy doing is they're like, there's a lot of really great like weekly com- group rides that happen. Um, but I call them, <laughs> I call these rides tea rides, testosterone rides. Uh. <laughs> and I'm not always feeling like doing that. Um, where it's usually like 30, 40, 50 middle-aged white dudes, like three at most white women and me. <laughs> and sometimes there might be like one black guy, <laughs> if I'm lucky. Um, so in order to ride with black folks, I have to go to the black people ride. Um, and there's a black people club, and they're really great. They're called the Metro Atlanta Cycling Club, and I enjoy riding with them. But they're mostly like middle-aged to older guys, and it's like riding with your uncles, <laughs> which is fun. But I don't really feel like I have like peers to ride with, and it might be a matter of me just not having found that yet where I live. Um, and <laughs> so that's so that's that. And then as far as a team, um, I talked about you know not really successfully finding a team, um, and I found that being on a local team is really fun and really cool, but it makes it harder to do the bigger races, like the traveling races that I'd like to do, um, because it it blurs the lines of, like, team permissions and all of that, Um, and so it was just easier to race by myself this year, and it's not what I want. I would love to be on a team, because cycling is a team sport. It's a team sport. It's not a solo sport. And I've been doing it solo, and it's so exhausting, and it's so much work. And last year, when I was in the Netherlands, it was as part of, like, a race camp, um, where basically I paid this couple, and they fed us, and they drove us to races, and they handled everything, and all I had to do was race my bike. And I have never raced so well, because all I had to do was race my bike. But right now, as a solo racer... I have to get myself there. I have to make sure my bike is in working order. I have to feed myself, which is way harder than you think it is. <laughs> and it's, it's meant, like, by the time you get to the start line, you've used more mental capacity than you've accounted for. And, yeah, people do it, but maybe I'm not good at that part. And it's just really helpful to be on a team. So, yes, I would love to be on a team, and it's something that I will try and accomplish for next year, and hopefully we'll succeed in doing that. I'm determined to succeed in doing that. Um, but, no, I don't, I don't race alone by choice. It's Well, not completely by choice, but sort of by choice. <laughs> I find it interesting, because for my eight years that I've been on a bike for, I've never actually ridden with like a cycling group before, and I've always been really scared of joining a cycling group, because I'm always paranoid about being the the one that's left at the back the one that can't keep up the one that doesn't know the proper etiquette for riding within the groups i mean have you come across people like talking to you with stories of that i mean it's my own fear that i've got to get over anyway but um yeah i mean i have my own stories (laughs) uh when i like the first time i showed up for one of those t rides um someone thought i was lost (laughs) 
sorry. They thought I was lost. They, they, t- they told me about the easier ride that, I, that had already left. Oh. And I said, oh, no, this is the one I want to do. And he would not let it go. <laughs> and what, without wanting to sound like I'm asking a stupid question, but what on earth was that judgment based on, that you rolled up to this, this team, this group you were supposed to be riding with, and you got instantly told or asked if you were lost? I'm not going to make assumptions, but I've got, <laughs> I've got some theories. <laughs> Just the odd one or two. So. <laughs> but how, it, it, how on earth did that make you feel? Um, I mean, at this point, I'm used to it, so it was, I was annoyed because he wouldn't let it go, and it's just like, dude, I get it, you think I'm lost, but I'm not, so go away. Mm. Um, is someone's phone ringing? It's not me. No one used that buzzing? Musician's ears, I promise you there's a buzz. (laughs) Um, but it's something that I'm used to at this point where I'll, I'll show up, and one of two things will happen, either it'll be like that guy who thinks I'm lost, or... I'll show up and someone will recognize me. I'm at the point where now someone might recognize me. And then all of a sudden, I matter. And I hate that. I, like, really hate that. Because it shouldn't matter who I am or what I've done or where I came from. I showed up for your ride because I wanted to ride, just like you showed up for your ride because you wanted to ride. So don't treat me differently now that you know I'm one of you. Like, no. Like, I should be able to show up for this ride and ride my bike, and that be the end of it. And we all have a great time, and laugh, and, and sprint, and whatever else you do on these rides, and it's, it's fine. But no, I have, to have, I have to have acceptance. I have to have clearance that like, I'm, I'm worth being here. And that's so frustrating. And I know that's a barrier to entry for a lot of people. Because nobody wants to experience that. No one wants to feel that way. And if you show up for a ride and it doesn't work out, then you know. But if you show up for a ride and they already tell you it's not going to work out, like... Yeah, it's the, <laughs> it's the assumption being made. And I don't know who that's supposed to, to serve as a, a favor to. So I've not, I've not had that experience of turning up because, like I said, I don't ride in a team or I don't do any group rides like that. But you should the, try it. It's really fun. <laughs> I will. I will. One day, I promise I will do it. But the closest that I got to that was... Um, a few weeks ago, I walked into a, a cycling shop mm-hmm. with my partner. Uh, we were the only two people that walked into the shop. There were three assistants working the floor on the shop, and I went over to look at the women's department. He went over to look at the men's. Nobody came to ask me if I needed any help. No one wanted to know if I wanted any assistance or if there was anything in particular that I was looking for. And I watched from the corner of the shop while each assistant, three of them, all took turns eventually to go and ask Ian if he needed anything or if he was doing a particular ride or he had anything coming up. And I could have cried. This is the only way to describe it. And it's like there's part of me that's thinking, well, you know what, I'm kind of, kind of used to that. But that's also really bloody depressing to actually say I'm used to that being the, the case if it feels like it's just... Men making those assumptions who are also the gatekeepers to those kind of things, which is a massive barrier to entry already. So, you know, normally I would think to myself, if I walked into to a cycling shop, a sports clothing shop, whatever, it doesn't matter if I look like I'm supposed to be in that clothing or not. It doesn't matter if I have the physique of a cyclist, whatever the physique of a cyclist is or not. Come and ask me if I need help because I've come into your you're shop. You're a customer. That's just it. It's Do you just, not want my money? So, you know, you're talking about the fact that you get the, the whole, oh, that's Aisha McGowan, so of course she's supposed to be here. It, it shouldn't be like that at all. You're rolling up to something to take part in it, and that should be the be-all and end-all. 
And, you know, no one, no one did come and ask me if I wanted help. And I even made a point of holding the clothes up to myself <laughs> in the mirror just to see if anyone would come and talk to me. And nobody did. And Ian was the one that ended up seething in the corner of the shop when that happened. And I just thought, I, I don't want the grief. I can't be bothered with this. And I just walked out. We just left. And there's part of me that was kicking myself for not kicking up a fuss. And then part of me just thinking why do I want to bother doing that in the first place? Because it's just going to make me more angry. But it's, it's that whole thing of, again, feeling like you're being silenced or feeling like that you don't belong, which is crushing. And that's why I, I find it slightly crushing that you saying, I'm just used to it now. That, that shouldn't be the case anymore. No, no, it shouldn't. <laughs> and I, I guess I didn't even hear myself saying that because I've, been, I've started this podcast um, that I'm working on where I talk to other women of color in cycling and so it's my opportunity to hear their stories and have them tell their stories and I'm really enjoying it and I keep hearing a lot of stories like that where we collectively just deal with stuff because that's what we were taught to do where we were taught to not make a big deal and to not make a fuss and and that this is just the way it is and it goes from something like not getting helped in a store to literally being called very inflammatory things and letting all of that go because that's what we've been told to do and it's just when you hear it happening to other people it makes you angry and you're like you should speak up for yourself and then you tell a story and then you find out oh man I do that too (laughs) I totally do that too and we're we're just so well trained yeah or conditioned you just you (laughs) feel like you become conditioned to it and it's it's the disgust of feeling that that is just a, a normal experience. That's what you're, you're going to be dealing with, you know, as a, a woman or as a woman of color or from a marginalized group, you go into somewhere, be it going to take part in an event, walking into a other shop to get some help and nobody wants to, wants to happens, know you. That happens in reverse as well, where if you are um, a woman or a woman of color who works in a shop and a customer comes in, they automatically assume that you don't know anything. Um, and I hear a lot of stories like that. And it, it's just, it's frustrating because no matter where you are, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what role or position you're in. Someone's always going to assume or try and discredit you, at least in their head, yeah. before... Well, I'm hoping that she doesn't mind me talking about this in, in her absence, but Jenny of London Bike Kitchen has talked about this on her own Twitter feed and the Twitter feed of London Bike Kitchen as well, where people have walked into the shop looking for help or looking for assistance. They come to her and then they will ask to see a mechanic or they will ask to, to speak to the mechanic that's working there. Even oh, but though, it's Jenny. Yeah, <laughs> it's her and she'll, just, she'll, she'll talk about this. She'll be very vocal. You'll talk about it. And again, you'll, you'll feel the anger and the disappointment seething inside of you. And then it's just the whole, oh, well, that, that's just how it is. That's what's to be expected, which is absolutely insane. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is insane. Now, what I want to do before we carry on talking again is that I wanted to throw some questions to the audience as well, if anybody had any questions or comments that they would like to bring to Aisha. Go easy on me. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Aisha and Jules. This has been super interesting. Um, when you started your racing career, what was the best advice you were given? Um, oh, man. I've actually I wrote it down in a notebook, and I can't remember it. Oh, it was so good, too. Aisha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, 
man, I can like visualize it. I don't even know what it is. Yeah, I don't remember. Find the notebook and then Instagram I've it. been looking <laughs> for that notebook. I can't find it. I think I lost it in a move. I think it was along the lines of like, don't overthink things. Like, just go for it. Um, I remember who it was. It was Tara Parsons. And she was giving a talk. And I hadn't raced at all yet. I was thinking about it. And she was giving this talk about being a professional bike racer. And I hadn't raced at all. So I wasn't even trying to be a professional bike racer. I was just thinking about being a bike racer at all. That's where we are. I was scared to race. And she's talking about how when she started out, she had to race with the men. And she would, like I said, put herself in the back of the line and discredit herself. And I guess maybe she wore glasses or she had contacts. Something happened in this race and she couldn't really see very well anymore. <laughs> and so she was just following the wheel on the guy in front of her or the person in front of her to her knowledge. And she finished that race so well because she didn't know she was following a man. She was following like a really strong male racer. And when she'd realized that she'd been holding herself back because of her own whatever apprehensions or thoughts about herself, she, she tried to put that aside. She put that aside and then she you know, went on to become a much better bike racer from there. But that was the story that inspired whatever the, the advice was, but something along the lines of like, don't discredit yourself or don't, you know, like, don't sell yourself short and don't sell, whatever. <laughs> What would be the advice then on that that you were given if you would then, from your own experiences as well, that you would pass on to someone who was thinking about getting into competitive cycling? Go for it. I think the only way you'll know is if you try it. And I don't really know how it works here, but in, in the States, all you need to try racing is a temporary day license and a bike, the appropriate bike for whatever discipline, but that's what you need. Um, and you can just try it. And they have beginner level races and you just do it. And if you hate it, then you hate it. And if you like it, then you know. Um, but I feel like, at least for me, it took me a while to feel comfortable enough to try it. And then when I did, I was like, what were you waiting for? <laughs> um, and it's just fun. And not to set so many high expectations off the bat. Just, just have a good time. I feel like, like, I don't know if we were talking about this yet, but this whole idea of like ignorance being bliss. Like When yeah. I started bike racing, I was doing really well because I had no idea what was going on most of the time. I was just like, okay, so I have to do this, and then, okay, cross the line. All right, that's it. Got it. And I had like one goal, and that's all I had to do. And then maybe the next race, I added another goal. But it was very simple. It wasn't overly complicated, and I've found that the more I know, the, the more I worry, <laughs> and the more I panic, and the more things I feel that I need to be in control of, whereas if I can just zone in on the things that truly matter, I usually end up doing way better in those races. Okay, have we got any more questions from the floor as well for Aisha? Oh, oh, right, I'm going to go to the back, and then I will come back to you, sir, I promise. What does your training, what's, a, what's an average week of training like oh, for you? Oh, I hate these questions. <laughs> okay, so that is just a whole other can of worms. Um, so my, my, my training journey has been an interesting one where 
I'll have a coach and then it doesn't work out and then I'm by myself trying to like figure out my life and whatever. Um, but now I have a coach again um, and I don't know what an average training week was, but this week was a lot. <laughs> um, and my coach has been really good about, while I'm here, just letting me ride my bike a lot, <laughs> um, which has been really enjoyable. And um, I, before I came to London, I was in Spain, and I got to, to, to ride there with, with some folks and a little bit by myself. And every time I ride, I end up finding somebody and riding with them, and I don't know how that happens. Maybe I'm a friendly face. Um, but it can be anything from just a ton of miles to intervals to, um, which is also important, rest. It's my favorite, the, the rest days. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know what an average training week looks like because I'm still figuring that out five years later. <laughs> so when you've been over here, because I know obviously from like trying to, to catch up with you and stuff like that, that you've been going out like, is it two or three hours every morning since you've been here, like going out for rides? <clears throat> Um, this morning I rode for about two hours. Um, last week it was a lot of four-hour days. Um, but since I'm about to jump across continents again, it will be more so trying to get over jet lag and a little bit less riding. And Colorado, I think, is in about three weeks. And the thing about Colorado is that it's in the mountains, and I've never done anything at altitude. Um, so I'm going to have to go there a little early and try and acclimate to altitude, which I hear everyone reacts to differently, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I have no idea what to expect my body to do, um, but hopefully it adjusts and, and we'll be okay. And we'll be able to follow that, I'm guessing, across all of your social media channels as well. Of there course. will always be some Aisha. I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be some interesting race reports, although I don't know that I'll get lost this time. <laughs> Hopefully I won't get lost. <laughs> you don't want to get lost in the mountains. No. But oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 not in the mountains. <laughs> that sounds awful. Can I pass the mic? Um, just a quick question. If, if I could take you back five years, okay. time travel, easy, and you had to tell yourself something, something short, don't change lives, what would you say to yourself? Tell myself something short that would change lives? No, something that, just for you, a tip for yourself that might shortcut something, give you a belief... So you could go back five years and go, you just need to do this more or you just need to go and do that. What would it be? What would be your advice to yourself? Um, I think my advice would, is always going to be don't worry so much. Um, things have a, a way of doing what they're going to do and either working out or not working out. And maybe, maybe the short advice is the world is not going to end. <laughs> Because there always feels like there's that one thing that's going to send it all crumbling down. And it never does. And so I think that would be it. The world's not going to end. Any more questions from the floor? Hi. It's just a very simple one. But what was your most enjoyable race that you've ever done in cycling so far? What do you mean by enjoyable? Well, basically when you finished and you're grinning ear to ear and you think, yeah, that was like completely, I love oh, that. Oh, that's hard. I grin a lot. Like, yeah. I think I'm, like, the one, I don't know, maybe there are others out there I'm not really paying attention, but I'm, like, I, I'll grin in the back of the race, even if I'm not winning. Like, just being there is super exciting for me a lot of the time. Um, and, like, I've had races where I'll come in, like, 30th or later place, 
And I'm still smiling because I didn't even think I was going to finish with the group. Um, and just the joy of like, man, you did that. And that was really hard. <laughs> and I guess it's more of like a type two fun where while it's happening, you're like, crap, this is, this is kind of awful. <laughs> um, and just kind of like, hang on, just hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, and then you finish and I'm, you're just ecstatic. And everyone is just really excited because you're excited. And smiles are contagious, guys. But I think, hmm, favorite, favorite race. I, I, my favorite race to do is the Harlem Skyscraper Classic, which I consistent, I've been consistent in saying that. Just because it's in New York City, and I love New York City, and it's in Harlem, and it's around Marcus Garvey Park, who's um, like a, a huge like, African-American like, civil rights figure. And it's just such this really cool community feel. Like, if you had to make a movie, like, have you ever seen Luke Cage? <laughs> like, if you had to make a movie about Harlem, like, this looks like a block party almost. You've got, like, people sitting on the stoops, um, and it's just so fun. And this year, um, I stuck around and I watched the Pro Men race. And what was really, really cool is Justin Williams, who's also African American, he's, he's a pro male racer, he won. And I was on the corner in front of the finish line, and the people around me were all, not all, but a lot of them were from where he's from. Um, I, think, I think he's from Grenada, maybe, or I don't remember. He's from, oh, this is going to bother me. Um, but wherever he was from, they just started shouting out the country. <laughs> like it was the World Cup. <laughs> They know it. I was like, "Do you even know his name?" They're like, "No," and they were just so excited that somebody from where they were from and somebody who looked like them won the race, and they were so happy. Um, and that, like, just that that feeling of like, that's like the one race in the world I think where I feel like this is it. Like, this is the vision that I have for bike racing. I want this everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Harlem skyscraper, longest answer to the shortest question. <laughs> okay, do we have any more questions from the, the floor as well this evening? So I was going to check again back on Facebook Live to see if we've got anything else coming in from there too. Oh, uh, Jonathan, who was asking the questions before, says move here. Move here? Yeah, you just need to come and live, live here. Yeah, you work out that visa and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. I also have a dog and a husband <laughs> and two cats. Move them too. <laughs> Move them too. They can be friends with my cats. It will be absolutely fine. There so. you go. <laughs> We've well, got it all worked out. I'm coming. <laughs> well, do we have any more, any more questions from the, the floor? I'm happy to run around like Annika Rice and, and pass the mic over if anyone's got some. So, no. We're, we're just going to carry on chatting then, which is absolutely fine. Now, you, you're talking about, not to be a, a, a downer, uh -oh. but you're talking about like the... The, the best race that you've had or the, the best event that you've been to. Mm -hmm. What stays in your memory as one of the worst experiences or one of the worst competitions that you've been in? Okay. I got this. <laughs> um, it had nothing to do with the racing itself. Um, I won't mention the race, but it was a race that I actually won. And it was a stage race, so they weren't doing podiums every day, which is like when you stand on the first, second, third place and take a picture and your mama smiles and everyone's proud. The end of the stage race happened and the idea is that they were going to do podiums for all of the previous days as well as the current day and then the overall everything. They decided they weren't going to do 
my race. And so I asked, I said, hey, you know, my mom's here, my husband's here, my friend's here. I'm really excited. I really want to do this podium because it means a lot to me. You don't even have to say nothing. Just let me stand up there, take a picture so my mama can clap, and that would be enough. And they gave me a really hard time. And the other women who were in the race with me were like, it's not a big deal. We're all right here. We can do this. We can just stand up there. We take a picture. And so this person's grumbling and just angry. And eventually he gets on the microphone, like whatever for the race, and goes, Aisha is crying because she wants to have a podium picture. So can all of the girls in this race come to the podium? And I, <sighs> You've got to be kidding. And it was just so deflating because I was just like, First of all, I wasn't crying. I was requesting. And it's not a big deal that I want a picture from you, but it's a big deal for me to get that picture. Yeah. And it won't take much out of you to do it. And now you're just being a jerk and trying to embarrass me. And I hated that. And I also hated that my mom was there because I have a black mama and it took everything in her spirit <laughs> to hold back, <laughs> to hold right? Back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But she did. Mm. And every year she's like, you're not going back to that one, right? I'm like, no, Mama, I'm not going back. Did they, I mean. I'm like banned. I can't go. From, they didn't ban me. My mama banned me. I can't go back. But was there any, I mean, it doesn't sound like there's anything to justify why you weren't able to have that. But did they even try and give you They an were excuse? running short on time. That was the excuse. Um, wasn't good enough for me. No. And then in the same, in the same race on a different podium, they like announced the girls that were going up to the podium, the women that were going up to the podium. And one of the comments that the same person made was, oh, your boyfriend must be so proud. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're just like this. <laughs> you're just a terrible it's person. That's how you are. Okay, got it. Oh so yeah, mama won't let me go back to that one. No. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you had such a sucky experience, but were the other women that were with you, were they supportive of you? Was there... Yeah, I mean... The women within the races are, everyone's having their own struggles. Everybody understands. I don't, no one's ever really given me a hard time. There's been like a huff and a puff here and there, microaggression here and there. But for the most part, the women within the racing community have all been very good to me. And I have no complaints. Now, it's going to sound like a job interview question okay. that I'm going to ask you. But where do you see yourself? Where do you see your, your journey um, within cycling and just your own personal growth within the industry? I don't know. I'm not going to say next five years' time because that feels like it's hard, but just within the next year because it's been amazing to see what's hard. Well, this is <laughs> easier than, than five years because it's seeing what you were doing last year on your journey when you were here and then what you've achieved in those 12 months and coming back to tell us about it. So what do you hope at least that the next 12 months may hold for you? I hope it holds a team. That would be really great. Um, it'd be really nice to get a top 10 in a pro race. It'd be even nicer as a stretch goal to win a pro race. That'd be fantastic. Um, but I think having been doing this for a couple of years, there's not really a time on how long it takes. Like some women, it takes a really long time and some women they jump out there and they're like pro next week it feels like not accurate but like that's what it feels like um and i'm hoping to be somewhere in between um but 
Yeah, that would be really nice. Yeah. Do you reckon we'll see you again with, with Foxtrot if you're going to come back over again with your tours that you're doing? I always try. <laughs> I always make, a, make an excuse <laughs> to, to come back. Now, I'm going to ask again if anyone has any more questions in the audience that they're, they're sitting on or if it's just burning on the tip of their tongue that they want to ask. Yes! Let me come and find you and not fall over. Hi. Um, where do you uh, get your confidence from? Have you always been <laughs> such a confident person or is that something that's grown? Is that oh, something do I that's seem confident? Comf yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even to be able to say, like, I know that I'm good and I know that I deserve to be able to do all of that kind of stuff. Like, that's a hard thing, even if you, like, think it in the back of your head to be able to actually say it. So, okay, I can see that. Um, for me, confidence is a very weird thing where I'll have just, like, unabashed confidence in certain things and complete and utter, like, just feelings of incompetence in, in other things. Um, I think, at least right now, I get my confidence from the things that I'm consuming, just watching other black women, like, grind and succeed and just doing what they love and it really working out for them. Um, and I feel like, at least in the States and maybe even over here, I don't really follow, like, the UK stuff so much, but it just seems like... There's been a whole lot of really amazing things coming out of the black community, just even in like pop culture and in, in media and creatives, right down to the, the Obamas. <laughs> um, and you've got like a lot of really amazing things that people are creating that I've been watching and consuming and just like feeling really empowered. So I've got like Issa Rae is really big right now. And over here, um, she does chewing gum. What's her name? What's her name? What's her name? Oh, Michaela Cole. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. Like, that's confidence right there. I don't know if you've ever seen chewing gum, but it's not something that I think would ever have gotten made. <laughs> I think it's in a, five, a, a massive deal ago. that that got made full, full stop, to be honest, in regards to, to yeah. that side of things. But it's, it's interesting that you're drawing your inspiration and your confidence that you get from beyond cycling as well. Because of oh, course, for you sure. can... it's not coming from cycling. <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, it's coming from the. It's totally coming from like the people who came before me in in the world and and the people who are doing things right now. I'm I'm just I'm easily inspired. Like I really like success stories. I don't know anybody who hates success stories, but I like really like success stories. What, I was listening to something earlier, and it made me tear up. And I was like, why the heck are you crying about this? Um, I cried when they freed Willie. Um, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's real touch and go with me. Um, so I think my confidence comes from the idea that I can have that moment. That, like, soaring through the air. <laughs> like free Willie. Like free yeah. Willie. Uh, the thing that you said to me just along those lines that sticks in my head as well is where you said that, you know, the people that come, that came before us. So you say that Major Taylor, obviously, a big deal. Serena Williams, that's someone we can look Huge, to, is a big yeah. deal. They are there and not in a bad way. They are not enough because no. there is still... No one, no one person is, is enough. enough. No. N no. And I wonder, like, if you're ever feeling like that you're kind of carrying that 
that mantle that you're you're supposed to be it. You're supposed to be the no poster way. girl. No way. Not even close. No. I'm like <laughs> the bottom stages of whatever is to come, <laughs> and I'm totally fine with that. Like there were other women before Serena, and look and look at just look at her. <laughs> A lot of people had to go through a lot of stuff for her to even have that. And she worked for it. Like, it wasn't like they went through those things and then she just breezed on it mm-hmm. and, and took it. No. Um, but she wasn't the first one. And um, she won't be the last. But she's, am- she's amazing. <laughs> um, but, like, even the idea that maybe there's a Serena in the future of cycling... Um, that maybe I could be a catalyst for is really awesome. Um, I really don't feel like I am enough. I know I'm not enough. I know no one person is enough. And in, at least in, in the States, Major Taylor is huge. I don't know how big he is over here. Um, but for, like, black cyclists, he is, he's it. Like, they love them some Major Taylor. And there's, like, a club in every state. And... They'll talk to you about until the cows come home about how great he was. And he was great. Like, he was a phenomenal athlete. Mm-hmm. But he was also, like, 100 years ago. And the fact that he's still, like, the most exciting thing to happen to, like, you know, he's the thing that, the only thing that we can really talk about beyond a handful of other folks. Like, we've got Nelson Bales and Rasan Bahati and, and the Williams brothers and, and, even even they're not enough. But the point is, we shouldn't be able to pick out every single black cyclist we've ever heard of on one hand. Like, that's not cool. And all of those folks are men. Um, and so, I think... I don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm it. I don't think that it's all resting on my shoulders. I don't, I'm not putting that on myself. I don't know if somebody else is putting that on me, but they're wasting their time. Um... I'm just trying to crack the surface, open the door, and my pro dreams are for me. They are for me. I know that. I'm not putting that, I'm not putting the idea that I want to go pro on the, like, I, don't, I can't organize my words, but um, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that I don't put that goal as the pillar of the success of cycling kind like it's not that serious I want to go pro because I like bikes and like bike racing I think I can do it I know I can do it and I'm going to do it and in the process hopefully I can inspire someone else to do it and do it even better and be more awesome and and start younger (laughs) and really have a go at it Um, I'm not like old but I'm older as far as athletes are concerned and so there at least in cycling these these cyclists are bred, like, bred from a young, young age. They are children when they start, and that's all they know. And that's not the case for me. I lived a whole life beforehand, mm-hmm. and I'm fine with that, and I'm having a good time. Um, but to, to think that I'm it would be foolish. It just would be, and I'm not. Well, you are inspiring so many people around the, the world for the fact that you're coming and being able to, to hold talks in places like this, that you're going around Europe and cycling and finding, you know, you say that it's almost like you're the littlest hobo with people that someone always tends to want to cycle with you that you're picking. Is that a, is that a British thing, the littlest hobo? <laughs> you know the littlest hobo. No, I do not. <laughs> the littlest hobo is American. Isn't it? No. There's a voice that keeps on calling me. The littlest hobo, the, the, the dog. What? 
<laughs> yeah, please, for the love of God, and to save my grace now that I've just started singing the theme tune, find it on YouTube. It's a really good thing. So he's a dog. He's not a dog. He's a displaced dog. person. No, he's bridge. not a displaced okay. person. No, the little hobo. That's what we. That's hobos. Yeah, but yeah. the little. <laughs> what I'm trying to say, okay. without disrespecting you or the littlest hobo, like, is I that don't get this reference. <laughs> <laughs> basically, everywhere that you go, uh-huh. you're you. You may not realize it that you're doing it, that you're bringing so many people together. You're bringing so many different communities together and inspiring so many people on your journey as well. And, you know, you're absolutely right in what you are saying with that you're, you know, you're doing this for yourself. You're not, you're not doing this to be the only person. And there needs to be more figures that we can count on, you know, more than one hand. And, you know, it needs to go beyond it just being black men being the only figures that we can count too. But what you're doing is absolutely incredible. You had a, a tweet that you did this week, which I was trying to remember because I quoted it, but it was something along the lines of, um, like, if you see what you're doing, like, don't hate on you, just go and do it better. And I don't know if that's, like, the kind of knowledge that you're, you're passing on to people or telling people through your story as well is, like, you know, don't hate on it. I don't know if you've encountered people that see your confidence as some kind of arrogance, if you've ever had that as well. I think the mere fact that I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do seems arrogant to a lot of people. Um, and that's, that's not really my problem. <laughs> um, I think that tweet came from my own, like the way that I try and be also, like even with like seeing other people thriving and either being mad at, about it or, je- or saying, I can, I'm, I can do that or being jealous or whatever the emotion that arises. Mm-hmm knowing that that's a complete waste of time and instead of me like being upset about what I'm seeing and being upset about somebody else's success, I can focus on myself and succeed, um, succeed, succeed for me and that is a much better use of my time. Um, and I have found that in taking that path, it's far more fruitful. <laughs> well, you talk about the, the, the power of positive <coughs> thinking as well. That's something that comes across quite a lot on your, your tweets and your social media that it's you very put out powerful. there. And we, we, we talked about this in length um, the other day when we met up anyway, just like what the power of positive thinking has done for you, not just within cycling, but just beyond everything else that you're, you're tackling in life. And just, I don't know, that you're, you're encouraging people to think along those lines too with the messages that you're putting out there. And that, that means a lot. That really does mean a lot. So I know I've drawn personally, oh, maybe people good. in the audience may have drawn inspiration from that too, but I know for a fact that I have when I've seen, you know, when you've had your struggles and when you've been on the grind, but you still somehow manage to find the positivity in that, which can be an incredibly hard thing to do. Well, one of the things that I'm working on in, in therapy, it's, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy, where the whole idea is that you kind of change the way you think and like question the way that you've been thinking. Um, and so one of the big things is not falling into should statements. <laughs> so like, I should, have, I should be doing this. And the, the question that you're supposed to ask is why? Why should you? Who said that? <laughs> like, who said that you should be doing this thing? Um, and just making sure that you're not setting yourself up for failure um, with just complete fabrications of your own mind. I think I have a very vivid imagination and just as positive as I can be, I can be equally as negative and that can get real bad, real fast. Um, and so it's really, it's something that I'm very conscious about. It's not, positive thinking is not necessarily the most natural thing to me. 
it's something that I've, over the years, have tried to train myself to do and train myself to be that way because I found that it has been more helpful than being negative, basically. <laughs> that sounds, sounds pretty good to me in that sense. Now, I'm going to throw to the audience one last time because I realize that it's getting very hot and that we're going to be wrapping up in a moment. But if anyone had any questions or if we had anything from Facebook Live, Alex, at all? <laughs> no, nothing from... Oh, if there, <laughs> if there was anything else coming over on Facebook Live for us before we wrap up. No? Oh, we've got one more question, so I'll come back over. Hello again. <laughs> Hello. What is your name? Pascal. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Um, another question. Has there been any standout experiences where you've stuck it to people's preconceptions of yourself? Or, yeah, or anything like that. Um, that's been, like super satisfying so I don't know where someone's basically looked at you and they said oh well you shouldn't be here and or anything like that and you've overcome any barriers and that's been like overly satisfying at that point um one instant popped into my brain I don't know if it fully qualifies but it was on another one of these tea rides <laughs> and there was a a guy and we were just you know we're riding and he was trying to drop me like trying so hard like with everything he had and it got to the point where he like looked at me and he goes are you really this good and I'm like dude really <laughs> like I knew you were trying hard I knew you were trying that hard <laughs> um, but it was kind of satisfying to see him give up <laughs> because in his head he just knew that he was gonna get rid of me and he was so much better than I was and that I was just bluff and <sighs> super satisfying. <laughs> okay, well, I think as we are coming towards the end, I want to say a massive thank you to Aisha McGowan for taking time out on her Foxtrot tour to come and talk to us today at Look Mum No Hands. So big a round of applause for Alicia. If you like what we do, don't forget to rate, don't forget to like, and don't forget to subscribe. We're on iTunes and we're on SoundCloud, and we'd really appreciate it if you could share our show with your cycling and perhaps podcast listening friends. We'd appreciate it. And until next time, bye. <laughs>
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.